Uh, Last week I mentioned that Paul's discourse at the Areopagus, Mars Hill, uh, was one of my favorite discourses that Paul spoke or wrote that we read about uh, in the way that he uh, presents the message um, to to non-religious people. Well, today's text from Acts chapter 18 includes one of the texts that was the most encouraging message for us to hear uh, during our mission work in Argentina. If there's one thing that is constant among all humans, among all countries, nationalities, ethnicities, language groups, is that we are all subject to discouragement. There are a long list of things that can throw us off our game, that can get under our skin, that can get into our head, that have a way of working and weaseling their ways, worming their ways into our lives. And we can sometimes think that certain individuals are immune to discouragement, these giants of the faith. Um, And and today we're going to notice that even the great Apostle Paul, I don't know how you imagine him, Uh, The traditional reports is he was kind of short, but we see him as this gigantic figure of faith, just his strength and his boldness and his willingness to put his body out there to be abused for the sake of the kingdom. And yet we're going to see that even he uh, got discouraged and needed help overcoming his uncharacteristic uh, feelings uh, that we'll read about in this text. And so Um, We're in good company when we feel discouraged, when we get frustrated, when we feel like things are closing in, when we feel like the the gloominess of night and the darkness of winter, uh, when it gets dark so early and, uh, and it turns light so late, just permeates our very soul, uh, then uh, we can think through what Paul's experience was and how he overcame that uh, with the Lord's help. So we're going to read Acts chapter 18, verses 1 through 11, and uh, and then kind of think through uh, Paul's ministry in Corinth. Uh, Acts 18, verse 1. Then Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he became acquainted with a few named with a Jew named Aquila, born in Pontius, who had recently arrived from Italy with his wife Priscilla. They had left Italy when Claudius Caesar deported all Jews from Rome. Paul lived and worked with them, for they were tent makers just as he was. Each Sabbath found Paul in the synagogue trying to convince the Jews and the Greeks alike. After Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul spent all of his time preaching the word. He testified to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah, but when they opposed and insulted him, Paul shook the dust from his clothes and said, Your blood is upon your heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go preach to the Gentiles. Verse 7. Then he left and went to the home of uh, Titius Justus, a Gentile who worshipped God and incidentally happened to live next door to the synagogue. Uh, Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, and everyone in his household believed in the Lord. Many others in Corinth also heard Paul, became believers, and were baptized. Verse 9. One night, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision and told him, Don't be afraid. Speak out. Don't be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you and harm you, for many people in this city belong to me. So Paul stayed there 
in Corinth for the next year and a half teaching the word of God. So the trip from Athens to Corinth is about 50 miles and walking would take about three days. And I imagine as Paul walked, uh, he replayed the events of his sermon and his ministry in Athens. Uh, Evidently, he left feeling that he hadn't accomplished much. Just a few individuals, two were mentioned, believed in the Lord. Might have felt he was unsuccessful. And perhaps he was walk as he was walking, he was thinking, man, maybe things will be better in my next appointment, my next city, which was the city of Corinth. So, so we can imagine that a lack of success in Athens started his feelings of discouragement. But then he arrives in Corinth and his initial feelings of discouragement gets fueled by his feelings of inadequacy. Now, Corinth was known as the Bridge of Greece because it sat on an isthmus that gave it access to two seaports. To the west, you had the Adriatic Sea, and to the east, you had the Aegean Sea. And at that particular point, there was not a canal that had been built. That was much later in history. But what they did do was unload all the cargo, roll it on logs over land until then it could be put on a different ship and that saved them having to go all the way around uh, the Peneponnesian Peninsula and save them a lot of time and also the potential for shipwreck. Well, seaports are known for their loose morals. And Miami is a seaport, as are many other cities in the world. And Corinth didn't have just one seaport, had two, two for, uh, 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 two for the price of one. In addition, it was the home of the temple of Aphrodite, the Greek goddess of love. Had the huge temple on top of the Acro-Corinth, which is the mountain overlooking ancient Corinth. And along with the temple and all along with the worship were a thousand temple prostitutes. Now, Aphrodite is the Greek name. Venus is her name in Uh, uh, or her Roman name. The city's debauchery and reputation was so infamous that in the 5th century BC, Aristophanes coined the word Corinthianize to mean to practice sexual immorality. That's how deeply uh, uh, the city had gone into immoral behavior. Now, if you imagine Paul, He was raised a Pharisee, raised in Israel, raised in relatively, we would imagine, pure context. This was probably the farthest he had ever gone down this road of a pagan, immoral society. And we can imagine that he felt like, how am I, this Pharisee of Pharisees, going to have any kind of ministry among people who are so heathenistic and so pagan that they wouldn't care a thing about Jesus or his ministry. He might have felt like he could hold his own with the intellectuals and philosophers in Athens because he was educated and he himself was an intellectual. But now you're just dealing with rank sin and he most likely felt overwhelmed. A third factor in his discouragement was that he was alone. He had left his co-workers uh, in the north. 
and in the east, and now he was entering into the city all by himself. Uh, he had been in trouble before. He had been accused and persecuted before already in his years of ministry, but now he's standing all by himself. In fact, when he writes 1 Corinthians, and uh, he's this is the very first communication that we have that he wrote, uh, he says, when I first came to you, talking about what's happening here in Acts chapter 18, when I first came to you, I came in weakness, in fear, timid, and trembling. So Paul was at the end of what he thought was his ability to handle this discouragement. You know, when we're in the middle of the gloominess of winter, even in Miami, we don't feel gloomy, but it still gets dark. If you've spent any time outside of Miami up north or far enough south, uh, you, you know how winters feel, those dark nights of the soul. We, we can feel like quitting. It's just too much. I can't do this. I can't continue. But, but God hadn't chosen Paul to quit. God had chosen him to be his apostle to the Gentiles. And what we see is that Corinth is a place where he actually leans into that ministry and into that calling. Makes me think of that slogan, which is true, where God leads, he feeds. Wherever the influence of the evil one gets into our heart and gets us down, God can find a way to lift our spirits. The first ray of sunshine into Paul's wintry night of gloom, if you will, uh, I think was to surround him with co-workers, surround him with community. Uh, we don't know how long he was in Corinth before he met Aquila and Priscilla, but they were truly a godsend. Uh, Paul immediately hit it off with them because most likely, the text doesn't say it, but most likely they had two things in common. One, they were followers of Jesus, and two, they shared a common trade of making tents. Now, uh, when we think of tent, we think of this thing that you go camping in. In the ancient world, it could have been a canopy. It could have been some sort of cover made out of leather, most likely. But they shared the same trade. And so they moved in together, shared a dwelling place, shared a work while he was continuing to minister. Now, let me make a brief aside. Uh, when I teach the book of Romans, one of the things I typically say at the beginning of the class in Romans is that the most important verse in the Bible to help us understand the book of Romans is Acts chapter 18, verse 2, where you have these individuals being expelled from the city of Rome by the emperor Claudius. The edict of Claudius that expelled the Jews from Rome happened in AD 49, and that is recorded in numerous historians of the day. And what we believe is that within that group of Jews who were expelled were some Christians, ones that were present on the day of Pentecost, who put their faith in Jesus and then returned to Rome and started a church. Now, this would have looked like a Jewish church, much like the church in Jerusalem and everywhere that the initial movement was spreading. But now that the Jews and even the Jewish Christians were expelled from Rome, that Jewish church was left in the hands of whatever Gentile believers were in the city of Rome at that particular time. When Nero comes to power, he 
removes the, uh, the, uh, the restriction and welcomes the Jews back in. And when those Jews came back to their home church, guess what? There was pork, uh, uh, pulled pork on the table. And they did things a little bit differently. And they didn't sing all the Jewish songs that the, uh, the Jewish community had learned. Now they were singing Gentile Christian songs. And so Paul writes the book of Romans to help them work through that tension, learning how to accept one another, how to live as one body, even though they were two different groups. And so that's the backstory in Acts chapter 18 to the book of Romans. And it's just kind of a fascinating thing to see all of the pieces kind of pulled together. Okay, back to Corinth. Paul is not only surrounded by Aquila and Priscilla, He's also joined a little bit later by his co-workers, Silas and Timothy. Now, when Silas and Timothy arrived, they were left up in the north, up in uh, um, Thessalonica and Philippi. They brought two pieces of positive uh, 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 rays of sunshine into Paul's life. The first was that the Thessalonian church was doing really well in spite of the persecution and the challenges they were facing. And you can read through Thessalonians and you can see how Paul was so encouraged to get the word that they were doing well. The second thing was that they most likely brought an offering of money uh, to Paul from the church in Philippi. And when you read the book of Philippians, you'll see that he's thankful for their gift and their generosity. And that's probably what allowed Paul to go back to preaching full time. He was doing the tenth thing while he was waiting for uh, some sort of donation. And once that money came in, then he was able to dedicate himself completely to, uh, to preaching. And so we are beginning to see more and more rays of sunshine kind of burning through the, the, the clouds. Um, in addition to that, we see that he is experiencing a fairly positive reception from the individuals that were around him. Uh, the Jewish community didn't receive him, but among the Gentiles and especially among um, the, the, the leader of the synagogue uh, 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 came to faith. And so uh, numerous individuals are being baptized. And so uh, this community that started off with just Paul and perhaps Aquila and Priscilla, then joined by Silas and Timothy, is now growing to include more and more Corinthians. And as you read through the book of First uh, uh, Corinthians, you'll see that many of these were people who were coming out of the world. Remember in First in, in Corinthians chapter 6, and such were some of you. And there's a long list of the kinds of behaviors that these individuals were, uh, were involved in. But they believed the message about Jesus. They bought into this message of new life. And I think it just points out the axiom that we might have heard that seeds grow best when they're planted in manure. And when the seed of the word of God is planted in hearts that are filled with, as it were, manure and the kind of living that would be associated with that, we see that there is an abundant harvest and abundant growth and some of us can attest to that kind of action. And so the word of God planted in the hearts of pagan Corinthians uh, has sprouted. The church is growing. And if that wasn't enough, there's one last thing that kind of puts it over the edge for Paul. 
in terms of a encouragement to scare away the darkness that he was experiencing. And that was to receive a vision from the Lord. That's how it all started with Paul, remember? He was on the road to Damascus and there was this vision. He's received visions a couple different times. There was the Macedonian, the man from Macedonia that appeared in a vision said, come, help us. And that was kind of what guided his mission. But now it isn't a man from Macedonia or the image of any individual. It is the Lord himself. And when the Lord appears, he tells Paul five things. And I think these five things are instructive and will help us as we also think about our dark night of the soul. The first is don't be afraid. Fear is the fruit of forgetting who is in control of our lives and our circumstances. And so this was the way the Lord Jesus would tell Paul, don't forget who you are and don't forget who I am. Remember your father, remember his son, remember his spirit. Perfect love, First John tells us, casts out fear. Remember Christ's love. When fear comes, flee to Jesus. Second thing he says is keep on speaking. Do not be silent. So often when we're afraid, we stop. We're paralyzed and we're not sure what to do. And Paul's encouragement here was from the spirit was to keep on preaching. Be faithful to your calling. Don't let your fear paralyze you into inaction. The third thing he says, the Lord says, is I am with you. Emmanuel, God with us. There's so many times that the promise through the Old Testament and the New Testament, the promise is given once and again. I will be with you. God's favor surrounds us like a shield. Uh, Psalms chapter five. No one is going to harm you. No one is going to attack you. Now, that wasn't a promise necessarily for all time and for all people forever and ever. Because many of Paul's companions and Paul himself will be attacked and will be harmed to the point where he will actually be put to death. But in Corinth, where Paul is beginning this ministry, he's starting out brand new. Uh, uh, God wanted to put a hedge of protection, as it were, around him to help him get started. And the promise is, at least while you're in Corinth, you can work, you can preach, and you don't have to be afraid of what they might do. The last word that the Spirit gives him, the Spirit of Christ gives him, is, I have many people in this city. The Lord had a future for the church in Corinth. Paul didn't know it yet. Paul couldn't see it yet. He hadn't met these individuals. But Jesus tells him, there are people waiting to be converted. All you have to do is find them. And when you think about big city ministries like our ministry in Buenos Aires and our ministry here in Miami and your ministry in Miami, I, I think all of these factors can help us remember that God's presence, his protection, and his power are with us at all times. Don't be afraid. Don't allow our fear to paralyze us into inaction. Remember Emmanuel, God with us. I'm going to put a parenthesis around no one is going to attack you and harm you because you might be attacked and you might be harmed. But at the end of the day, 
uh, uh, there's nothing that they can do or anyone can do that will ultimately rob you of the promises that God has. And the last, I think, is especially true. I have many people in this city. Who knows how many people are waiting to hear the word, are waiting to receive Jesus, waiting to make a decision to be baptized. And what they need is for someone to show up and say, hey, come over here. Follow me. Let me lead you to the master. So God's promises are true. In addition to what he promises, I think it's also true that we all need someone, somebody to lean on. But in order for us to find that support, we have to be open and honest, transparent about our weakness and be real with how we're doing or how we're not doing. And that gives an opportunity. And I think Paul is learning as this rigid, hard-nosed Pharisee militant in his attitude, we see him breaking in Corinth. And we see him beginning to show a human side and allowing his emotions. And, 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 and when you read 1 Corinthians and especially 2 Corinthians, you can hear his heart. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he talks about how God's strength is evidenced in our weakness. And that is something that we can share with one another. When I was a kid, my, my dad was a big uh, musical and show tunes kind of a guy. And, and I can still hear him belting out, not very well, but belting out nonetheless, Oh, what a beautiful morning. Oh, what a beautiful day. I've got a beautiful feeling. You know the rest? Everything's going my way from the uh, Rogers Hammerstein um, uh, musical Oklahoma. Well, I don't know about you. There might be a few days that I feel like that or parts of some days, but most of my days and even most recently, I don't know that everything's going our way. I don't know that I have this beautiful feeling. I don't know that it feels like it's a beautiful morning. And, and, and perhaps today you're feeling a bit of that gloom, that winter gloom. Uh, you know, you think about wintertime in the north where it seems like nature itself has died. But yet even in the midst of the gloom of winter, there are rays of sun that can brighten our lives. I'll conclude with this poem written by Azmat Nashad. There is something about the winter sun that aspires hope after struggle. The wait, <laughs> the wait for tomorrow and the long shivering nights is the optimism attached to the winter sun. There is something about the winter sun, the fluorescence of its beaming rays, the calmness of the flowing sunshine that convinces us about the warmth of the winter sun. There's something about the winter sun, the tender hugging of the sunbeams on the exposed, numb body of trees and people that confirms the comfort provided by the winter sun. There's something about the winter sun for whom is the suffering finite. The warmth of the sun is also for them. A part of the shine belongs to them. For in the winter sun we find consolation.
And God will encourage us in our moments of gloom, in our moments of darkness, and we can count on his presence, his protection, and his power to be with us no matter what the challenge and no matter where we are. Um, We're going to have a song, and then Jeff Henson will come and lead us in prayer. Thank you.